let's go ahead and review the disciplines. You can flip over your notebooks and also um, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 4 in your Bibles. Okay. Proverbs 4, 23 reminds us of the very important activity of guarding or watching over our hearts, taking care of our thoughts and our emotions and our decisions. About um, probably three times ago, John taught on Hebrews 3 and 4 here in Wellspring, and he gave us a lesson that um, just reminded us that we need to guard our hearts from being hard when we hear God's voice. So anytime we are alone with God's word reading or we hear a sermon, that is God's voice. That's him speaking to us, and we need to just check our hearts for hardness, that we are not resisting it, not resisting God's word. So that um, is one way we can put into practice Proverbs 4, 23, to just be vigilant and checking our hearts against hardness. The purpose of Wellspring, you can read along with me, is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. The pastors and the leaders over Wellspring desire that this ministry will give each of us courage to faithfully and continually shepherd our hearts toward Jesus with the truth of God's word. They also desire that we're equipped to do this. And the goal of this heart shepherding is not only personal holiness and Christ-likeness, but also the health and the strength of our local church. So go ahead and read along with me Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, and then listen for... There's two verses that almost kind of restate the purpose of Wellspring that we have written out on our binders. Starting in verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So there's a lot of phrases, a lot of really interesting, um, good things in there, but verses 12 and 16 are the motivation for what takes place here every other Wednesday morning. We are being equipped for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Our individual proper working will cause the body to grow and to be built up in love. If each of us are taking care of our thoughts and our attitudes, emotions, our decisions by submitting them to God and to his word, and we're confessing and forsaking sin, and we're seeking personal holiness, and we're using our gifts, that's all here in Ephesians 4, um, then the result, according to Ephesians 4, is going to be a healthy, strong, truthful, loving, mature, Christ-like church, which sounds like a great church, right? All right, let's move on to discipline one. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. And I wanted to share something with you guys that I think has been helpful for um, 
Discipline One, and this is our small group girls have been going through the mortification of sin, and they just finished. I wasn't there, but anyway. Um, this has been helpful for me just regarding Discipline One, just the motivation to continually keep shepherding my heart. Um, this book is called The Mortification of Sin. It's um, John Owen, and you probably know, but mortification just means putting to death. So in this book, um, John Owen writes about ways that we can actively put sin to death in our lives. And one of the ways um, he wrote about was just cultivating humility. He encouraged his readers, and I'm going to quote him, to be exercised with such meditations as will fill us at all times with self-abasement and thoughts of our own vileness. So in case that sounded very wordy and hard to understand, that was actually abridged, but it's not that hard to read. Um, he's basically saying we need to practice meditating on things that help us realize our own vileness and our own sinfulness. And that doesn't mean that we just sit around and think about our sin and look inward and just be so sad about, oh, how sinful I am. He's saying meditate on God's greatness, and that's going to result in us being very aware of who we are before him. Um, it's humbling, and it also helps us to fight sin. And I wanted to read to you um, a couple of quotes. I think they're helpful and probably motivating to keep going and discipline one. He writes, Such were the thoughts of men of old. When they saw God, they thought they would die. The scriptures abound in these self-abasing considerations. Men of the earth are compared to grasshoppers, to vanity, and dust on the scales in respect to God. That's from Isaiah 40. Consider these things often to abase the pride of your heart and to keep your soul humble within you. Such a frame of heart will be a great advantage in conquering the deceitfulness of sin. Think often of the greatness of God. So in the light of God's character, in light of what he's doing, what his work is, our sin shows itself for what it is. It's ugly, it's deceitful, it's petty, it's dangerous to us and to others, and it's obviously idolatrous. Um, a good comparison might be bugs that are hidden beneath a rock in the dark. Um, because they aren't visible to you, you aren't even aware that they exist, probably, oftentimes. But when the rock is picked up and the light shines on them, what was always there is seen for what it is. So the same is true for us. When we're constantly exposing our hearts to the light of God, um, to the light of his character, to his word, to his person, our sin is going to be more obvious. It's going to be exposed. And that will result in humility and the ability to put it to death because we're not going to be as deceived by it. We'll know it's there. And so I'll just read to you three more quotes and then we'll move on to discipline two. I just think these are so helpful. He says, consider often how unacquainted you really are with God. Certainly you know enough to keep you low and humble, but how little we really know of him. Seek to keep your heart in a continual awe of the majesty of God. Realize that the most learned and eminent and the nearest and most familiar in communion with God still in this life know but very little of him and his glory. And he was talking specifically about Moses. When he was talking about that, he was, you know, think of how well Moses knew God. Yet it says he only knew the back parts of God. And then one more quote. The truth is that we all know enough of him, God, to love him more than we do, to delight in him and serve him, to believe him and obey him, and to put our trust in him much beyond our current attainments. Our darkness and weakness is no excuse for our negligence and disobedience. Who can say that he has lived up to the knowledge that he has of the perfections, excellencies, and will of God? 
So that was just so helpful for wanting to know God better um, for the purpose of killing sin. Okay, discipline two. We'll just read through this. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And then discipline three. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So we already saw from Ephesians 4 that this ministry, Wellspring, is about equipping individual believers for the purpose of corporate church strengthening. There is a unique mandate for ministry within the church that applies to women ministering to other women. And that special mandate is in a letter written by Paul to a pastor named Titus. Paul instructed Titus to do a lot of things, and I'm just going to read to you a few of the things he wanted Titus to do. He wanted Titus to appoint elders. He wanted him to recognize who's qualified to be an elder. He wanted Titus to reprove empty talkers. He wanted him to speak what's fitting for sound doctrine. He also told him to teach what older men were to be like, teach what older women were to be like. Um, he was to urge servants, bond slaves, to be subject to their own masters. Um, I'm actually skipping through here. He wanted him to avoid foolish controversies. So there were a lot of things that Paul asked Titus to do. Um, but one thing that he didn't ask him to do was what Titus was to teach the older women to be a certain way so that they could do something with the younger women. So as a pastor, Titus obviously had the responsibility to teach all of God's word to all of the believers. But I think it's so interesting that in this section, Titus was to make sure it was the older women who were encouraging the younger women in specific things not Titus himself. So I'm not going to take the time to read Titus 2, 3 to 5. I hope that's kind of fresh on your mind and you guys can recall that pretty easily. But there is a unique and a special ministry that Paul and God gave to women, older women to younger women. And that can take place in a formal as well as an informal setting. So this is part of discipline 3, stepping into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. If you find that you are older than someone else, um, then these qualities need to be evident in your life. These qualities right here. That you are pursuing reverent obedience to God, that you're exhibiting self-control in your speech and in your comforts, that you're teaching what is good. So pursue those godly qualities and actions so that you are able to encourage a younger woman to love her husband, love her children, to be sensible, to be pure, worker, a, a worker at home, kind and submissive to her own husband. And then on the other hand, if you are younger than someone else, a younger woman, make sure that you're humble and you're seeking input and getting wisdom regarding those specific qualities of life that are listed in Titus 2. And then remember that as a younger woman who's being encouraged by an older woman, you will cause growth in the older woman by being faithful in your walk with the Lord. Just like we saw in Ephesians 4, if each individual part is working properly, it will cause growth in the body when it comes into contact with another individual part. So this woman-to-woman -woman ministry is just one of the many ways, but something that we should be a part of so that we can be a, a faithful woman stepping into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So those are our disciplines. You can pull out your outline for the lesson today. You can also turn to 1 Samuel 1.
and I apologize. I can't really see your faces very well because I need to keep these glasses on so I can read, but it makes everybody else look a little, I don't know, blurry or something, but I can kind of see you. Um, okay, well, I really enjoy biographies. It's probably my favorite, it is my favorite genre of literature. Um, they're just fun to read because it's a story um, and they're, they're true, which in some ways is kind of sad because if something awful happens, you can't just go, oh, it's just a story, it's made up. It's like, oh, it actually happened. But I, I typically like to read biographies about other believers. It's so fun to see how God's used such different people with such different skills and abilities and resources to do his work. Um, I do enjoy reading about anybody, not just believers, um, even people that aren't good. Sometimes it's like really interesting just to kind of get a little more like a, a little book on Hitler, like just like what was going on? What was this guy thinking? You know, I think it's just interesting um, because all of us are, we can identify with anybody. We're all human. We're all born into a world of sin. We're born into a world that's been cursed because of sin. Um, and none of us pick our setting. We don't pick our parents. We don't pick where we were born, when we were born. So um, it's just interesting to see what people do with the different settings they've been given. Um, all of us, we've also, we can also identify in the sense that we all experience so much of God's grace in this world. Even though it is a world cursed by sin, there is so much of God's grace and his kindness to everybody. He's near to all of us, and we can reach out and, and find him. He's revealed himself in scriptures, revealed himself in nature. So anyway, so I do. I love reading biographies, and it was fun last week having Cameron give us all these little mini biographies of women from the Bible. So the book of 1 Samuel is primarily about Saul and David, who are Israel's first two kings. Um, there's a side character. I don't even know if I should call him a side character, but he's a significant character in this book, and his name is Samuel. He was the last of the judges. He was a godly man. He experienced favor with God and men. Um, God spoke to him, and God worked through him for a really long time. He was the one that led the nation in feasts and offerings to God. He anointed Saul to be the first king. He was the one that passed on God's word of condemnation to Saul, letting him know that God was taking away the kingship from his family line. And Saul was the one who anointed David to be the king after Saul. And at the end of Samuel's life, the people of Israel have nothing bad to say about him personally. Um, they really wanted a human king. And so his, his sons, he had appointed them as judges to follow after him, but the people did not want them. They were not actually just. They were actually accepting bribes. And I'm not sure that um, it was just because of that. I think they just really wanted a king. But anyway, they had nothing bad to say about Samuel himself. He was a good leader in a rough time. And he stands in sharp contrast to Eli, who was the previous spiritual leader. He was the high priest in the temple when Samuel was a, a little boy. He also stands in sharp contrast to Eli's sons, who were the following priest. And then he, was in, he stands in sharp contrast to Saul, the first king that Israel had. So this morning, we're going to spend our time on a side character in Samuel's biography, and that is Hannah, his mom. So the title of this lesson is The Holy Spirit's Biography of Hannah, An Afflicted, Humble, Faithful, Blessed Worshipper. And I just broke up this biography into five sections. Hannah's hardship, her humility, her faithfulness, her praise, and then her harvest. 
So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you so much for your word. Thank you that um, you've included this information for us about Hannah. Um, she gets a whole chapter and a half, basically, in your word. God, it's inspired by you, and you want us to know some things about her and to take away and glean things from her. God, there's so much to learn from her example, and it's just such a short period of her life that we even have recorded. Um, but there's so much encouragement from the way that she lived, from the way that she loved you um, and took care of her family, took care of her own heart um, in the midst of a really hard culture and environment. God, I just pray that you would use your word to work in our hearts. Um, I pray that each woman here would be encouraged where she needs to be encouraged and convicted um, where that's appropriate and just inspired to keep walking with you and to love you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So you can, don't, I'm not going to be offended if I don't see you taking notes or anything. So you can kind of, because it's a biography type of story, it's, it feels like a story. So if you want to just listen, that's totally fine. But write down what you um, find helpful. At the end, we're going to talk about some applications or implications, things that we can take away from her life. And I really hate to narrow it down. There's only four. I think there's like so many more, but I just picked four. So anyway, I hope we can just kind of listen and that it's kind of fun to hear a story. So we're going to start with the first eight verses in 1 Samuel 1 to see who Hannah is. This is the setting um, in which we find our character. And it's also her hardship. This is a hard setting. But before we look at her specific setting, um, I want to just give you the general setting of Israel at this time. So Hannah is living in the time of the judges. And if you remember, the very last verse in the book of Judges says, In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is like terrifying, like just to think about living in a setting like that. So after Joshua, the leader of Israel, after Moses died, after Joshua um, brought the people over into the promised land um, and he died, this whole like, uh, series of cycles started in the nation of Israel where, okay, so they came into the... Um, promised land. They were supposed to get rid of everybody. And God said, if you don't, they're going to be a thorn in your side. Well, they didn't. They didn't wipe out everyone that was living there. And so what happened was Joshua died. The people kind of started drifting away from God's word, from obeying him, from worshiping him. They started kind of, I think they just were doing what the people around them were doing. And so they're kind of mixing in probably pagan idolatry and sort of worshiping God. And then eventually they're just not worshiping God at all. Then they inter let their kids intermarry with the people around them. And then eventually they're becoming oppressed by the people around them, like the Philistines and the Ammonites. I think there were some other people groups. Um, and these people would take their produce or um, uh, maybe tax them, but they were being oppressed by these people. And then the Israelites would realize, ah, oh, this is our punishment. This is like just God is letting us get what we deserve because we have stopped following him and they'd cry out to him ask him to be merciful and God would be merciful and he'd raise up a leader from them it would be someone they would call a judge and God would give this leader um, leadership abilities usually some sort of military capability to help them get relief and some independence from the people that were oppressing them and then the people would start honoring God again and, and worshiping him, following his instructions, as long as that judge was alive. 
And then once the judge died, it would all start all over again. They would stop um, honoring the Lord. They would um, intermarry. The people around them would kind of take over them. They'd cry out to the Lord. He'd send them another judge. So that took place for 450 years from the time Joshua brought them into the land until this time of Samuel. He's the last judge. That's been going on. So when I've taught this lesson before in the past, I've given some examples of things that happened in the book of Judges, and I'm not going to, but there are so many horrible stories in the book of Judges. If it was a movie, you probably wouldn't watch it and definitely wouldn't let your kids watch it. It, it would be awful. So that's the environment and the culture in which Hannah lived. So in terms of scripture, what Hannah had, um, in terms of hearing from God and revelation, she would have had the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The book of Joshua, Joshua would have been already written out, and that would have been attached to the Pentateuch. So she had that. There were people that were prophets, so people were receiving revelation from the Lord during those 450 years. Um, but we see in 1 Samuel 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in her day, and there were no frequent visions. So that's what we have. That's what she had to go on in terms of her knowledge of God. Okay, so let's read the first eight verses. Now, there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept, and she would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Okay, so here are the characters. There is Elkanah, Hannah's husband. There's Elkanah's second wife. Her name's Penina. Then we see Eli the priest, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas and then Penina's sons and daughters. Those are the, the characters in this setting. We get information first on Hannah's husband. So there's all these names listed in that first verse. Um, it's just showing us that Eli, or not Eli, sorry, Elkanah is a Levite. Um, he lives in Ephraim, but he's actually from the tribe of Levi. So you'll probably remember that the tribe of Levi was not allotted any land portion but they were given little bits and pieces of all the other tribes in which they could live and farm when they weren't serving in the um, tabernacle or the temple. So um, that's what. So there's a list in First Chronicles six that has both his ancestors, Elkanah's ancestors, and his descendants listed. So that's how we know that he was actually a Levite. So we know that he was a Levite. He was also faithfully worshiping God. So he would go up to Shiloh, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, which is where God's presence is, and he would take his family up yearly, it says. So probably what this means is, if you remember, there were three required feasts that just the men had to go to um, each year before the presence of the Lord. So when it says yearly, it probably means he went for all the 
each year he would go for the three required feasts. Um, so he was a faithful worshiper. Um, we know that he loved and he honored Hannah. He took care of both of his wives and children. We also see that he tried to comfort Hannah and we see that he trusted her. And we don't have time, um, nor do we need to do a full study on what the Bible says about polygamy, but every time I read this, it just really bothers me, so I feel like I need to just do a little refresher, um, probably for everyone's sake. Um, I'll just give you a couple um, points in scripture. First of all, um, God set up marriage in Genesis 2. He brought Eve to Adam, and he said that a man is gonna leave his father and his mother and will be joined to his wife, which is singular, and the two will become one flesh. The first mention of a polygamous marriage is Genesis 4, and it's Lamech, who is Cain's, I have to get this right, great, great, great grandson. He had two wives. He's the first one mentioned of having two wives. So after Cain killed Abel, there's just like the sharp downward spiral of sinful living, and Lamech is in that line. Um, I think the implication is this is a sinful living. This is not what God would have. Um, Jesus then restates Genesis 2 when he's on earth and someone asked him about divorce. In Matthew 19, he says, God has set up marriage. It can't be severed because the two become one. So still we're, doing with two, we're dealing with two people becoming one. Then, of course, we see in the New Testament, there are elder and overseer qualifications that state that an overseer must be the husband of one wife. Okay, so that's probably not going to answer all your questions about Elkanah and Hannah and Penina, um, but just know that polygamy existed in the Old Testament, um, but be sure that God does not um, will it. So he can not will something but allow it, just like he doesn't will that we sin, but he allows us to sin. Okay, so Elkanah was certainly not a perfect man, but he was faithful to worship God. He had a Godward conscience, and he had a Godward way of life, in spite of having two wives. So that's the reality we find Hannah in. She is one of two wives married to Elkanah. We also see that um, he is a faithful leader in terms of worshiping. So I already said he's gone up, he goes up yearly um, with these required feasts, but he also takes his whole household. So just the men were required to go, but he would take his wives and children with him. They didn't live far away, so that wouldn't be as hard for him to do, but he was faithful to do that with them. So, um, um, Elkanah would offer to the Lord sacrifices, and he would worship, and then he'd eat with the family as the law prescribed. So part of this offering was you offer things to the Lord, and then you stay and you eat some of that before him. And it's kind of a feast, it's a kind of a time of joy where you're rejoicing in your peace with God. Um, he would give everyone portions to eat. He would give Hannah a double portion. It's just signifying that the person of honor at this feast is Hannah. Like, she was honored to him. He, he really loved her. So he tries his best to comfort her and to help her in her distress. He also seems to respect her as a godly woman and trust her decisions. We'll see that later on in the passage. So even though Hannah wants so desperately to have children, there is no evidence that Hannah is angry with her husband or God for her circumstances. And she also doesn't revile Elkanah for marrying Penina, at least as far as scripture records for us. There's no sense of bitterness in her heart. So it wasn't right that Elkanah took a second wife, but Hannah demonstrates humility 
and an ability to love her husband in spite of this difficult circumstance. So next we see Penina. So that's kind of a summary of her husband. Now we see Penina. She is not only able to bear children, but she is very mean-spirited. Penina liked to irritate Hannah whenever they'd go up to worship God. And, you know, obviously it could have been just because she can tell Hannah is very loved. And here she is bearing children. She's not loved. Um, I think it's also because she doesn't seem to have a love for the Lord. There's not um, the way that Elkanah and Hannah seem to worship and interact with each other. I'm sure that it, Penina probably just wasn't a part of that. So maybe that's what made it even worse. So she picked the thing that was the most painful to Hannah and just jabbed a knife in there and turned it around. So she was causing, it says in the Bible, excessive sorrow. And that went on year after year. So here's the summary of the setting in which we find Hannah. She is barren, but she is loved. She's living with a second wife and her children. She's being mocked and provoked by Penina. She desires greatly to be a mother. And verse 7 says, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. So this feast, like I said, was supposed to be a joyful time. And it's a time to um, rejoice in your peace with God that he grants through sacrifice. And Elkanah is just sad to see Hannah so distressed. He tries to encourage her, and maybe he even gave her a gentle rebuke by just reminding her of how much he loves her. And they both know that there's just nothing either of them, that them can do to open her womb. And I think in your outline I have that Matthew Henry quote, and I'm going to read that one. It's his quote on 1 Samuel 1. He writes, Our sorrow upon any account is sinful and inordinate when it diverts us from our duty to God and embitters our comfort in him, when it makes us unthankful for the mercies we enjoy and distrustful of the goodness of God to us in further mercies, when it casts a damp upon our joy in Christ and hinders us from doing the duty and taking comfort of our particular relations. And then he quotes Elkanah, Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Thou knowest thou hast my entire affection, and let that comfort thee. Note, we ought to take notice of our comforts to keep us from grieving excessively for our crosses. For our crosses we deserve, but our comforts we have forfeited. If we would keep the balance even, we must look at that which is for us as well as that which is against us. Else we are unjust to providence and unkind to ourselves. God has set the one over against the other, Ecclesiastes 7.14, and so should we. Now, I included this quote so that you guys would have it to use just for your own hearts to just evaluate when um, you do have sorrow or grief. I think it's helpful to see, is this excessive? Am I having inordinate sorrow and not doing what I should be doing? I didn't include this because I um, think this applied to Hannah. I actually don't think that Hannah's sorrow was excessive. Um, maybe if this was the pattern of her life, that when they would go up to worship, she just would never eat. She would never participate in worship because she was so sad. Um, I don't think it was the pattern of her life. I think this is the one time that she did this. But I do think that quote is helpful in examining our own hearts. Okay, so let's move on to section two. That was the setting of her biography. The next section I've called Hannah's Humility. And we've already seen the evidence of that characteristic in Hannah in the first eight verses, but there's even more evidence in the next section. So as we read um, verses 9 to 20, look for some autobiographical material. Up to now, we get God's descriptions of Hannah, 
in this next section, she's going to be talking about herself and praying. Um, you'll get some of her own self-descriptions and the way she interprets herself. Okay, so we'll read verses 9 to 20. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Okay, so Elkanah talked to Hannah. He tried to comfort her, just reaffirmed his love for her. Um, and then we see her just waiting for the feast to be over so that she can rise up and pour out her heart to the, to the Lord. Now, um, it may not be totally clear, but I, I'm leaning towards something on this. Um, the NASV says that Hannah rose after eating and drinking. It kind of sounds like she went ahead and participated in the feast. But I'm kind of leaning away from thinking that um, based on in all the other versions, like ESV, New King James, NIV, it says she rose after they had finished eating and drinking. And the reason I think that is I think she was fasting. I think she just felt like she couldn't eat and she wanted to go pour her heart out to the Lord. But you'll see it in verse 18. Um, it says that she went her way after she prayed and then she ate and her face was no longer sad. I think it would be kind of strange if she took part in the feast, prayed, even if she prayed for two hours to eat again. I just think she was probably fasting regarding the situation. So as soon as the family's done eating and um, done eating and drinking, Hannah leaves. So I can just almost imagine her like running, like going somewhere so she can be alone and pray. And we see that Eli, the priest, is sitting in the temple and he's overseeing the affairs of worship um, there in the place. And the Holy Spirit tells us that Hannah was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Can't we all identify with Hannah at, at some point in our life? We can identify with being deeply distressed, weeping bitterly, crying out to our maker, knowing that only he can give us the comfort and the help that we're seeking. And I wanna just point to you two, two verses, you might wanna jot these down. Hannah exemplified for us both of these verses. First Peter 5, 6 and 7, it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then the first Peter 5 of the Old Testament, which is Psalms 55, 22. 
Cast your burden on Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So in this section, Hannah is casting her burden on the Lord. And then did you notice her description of herself? This is how she described herself. She's afflicted. She calls herself God's servant when she prays three times. Um, when she talks to Eli, she describes herself as a woman who's troubled in spirit. She's someone that has not been drinking strong drink. Um, she's someone who has been pouring out her soul before the Lord. She's been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. And then again, she says that she's a servant. And this time she calls herself Eli's servant. So Hannah sees herself as weak, troubled, distressed, unable to do anything about her situation except to pray and pour her heart out to God. She doesn't see God as her servant, but she is his servant. She's in an undesirable situation according to the wisdom of the world, but she's in the best state when it comes to spiritual matters. God does not despise a broken and contrite heart. One commentator wrote, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, I'm going to say I don't think he means without biblical hope, I think he just means human hope, like wishing, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. So there's some encouragements we can take away immediately from this biography of Hannah. God used, on one hand, the mean, intentional provocation of Penina, and then on the other hand, Hannah's own physical situation where she was just unable to bear a child. He used both of those things to drive her to desperate prayer. Her heart was in agony, and she knew of only one recourse, and that was prayer. She cast herself upon Yahweh and poured her soul out to him. So not only can you and I most likely identify with Hannah to, to some level, um, having agony of heart and brokenness, but there is someone who can identify perfectly and to an even greater degree. Notice the parallel with Jesus. Jesus was in agony of spirit before he was arrested. In Luke 22:44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. So Hannah's agony of heart or our own, certainly cannot be put on the same level as Jesus' agony over anticipating bearing sin and its just, just punishment. But we can be encouraged that our sympathetic Savior knows what it is to be in agony of spirit, and it led him to pray more earnestly. If that's what he did with his agony of heart, that's obviously what we need to do. And then notice the specific request of God that Hannah makes. In verse 11, we see she's making a vow. She is asking something of God, and she's promising something to him. She asks, one, that God would look on her affliction. It's like she's saying, God, you know everything, you see everything, and I just want to make an appeal to your loving kindness and your mercy and ask you to notice and look on my affliction. It's hard for me and it's heavy. Just please look on this and see my heart. And secondly, she asks that God would remember her and not forget her. She's saying, please remember me. I'm your servant. I'm yours. I belong to you. Please remember me and don't forget me in light of what's troubling my heart. And then thirdly, she asks specifically for a son. She doesn't ask for lots of sons. She doesn't ask for sons and daughters. She asks for just one son. She would be happy with that. Um, Hannah desires to raise a son who can serve God. She would love to have a child that she could nurture and train and give back to God. 
She promises that she would keep him under most likely a Nazarite vow for all of his life. Years ago, um, Josh Kelso taught on prayer at a women's retreat, and I didn't look it up to see how long ago it was, but it feels like quite a while ago. Um, And when he was teaching, he brought up Daniel's prayer from Daniel 9, and he said that prayer is not God submitting to what we think should happen. So Daniel was asking for great things for himself and for the Hebrew people, but they were things that God had promised. So Hannah had not been promised a son, but it's clear that Hannah viewed herself as one that would submit to God, not expecting God to submit to her. She's God's servant, but she also knows that he's powerful and he's able to answer her request if he would choose to do it. One of the big takeaways for me from that retreat on prayer was what Josh taught about praying in Jesus' name. And I'll just read what he said. Um, Praying in the name of Jesus is praying according to God's will. Praying consistently with who Jesus is. If our prayers are rooted in selfishness, then we're not praying in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name is a heart motive. I thought that was really helpful. So obviously Hannah didn't tag on at the end of her prayer, in Jesus' name, because she didn't know Jesus. but her, it's so evident that her prayer was not rooted in selfishness, but in a desire to see God glorified and a desire to serve him by raising a godly son. Then verse 12 of 1 Samuel says that Hannah continued praying before Yahweh. So there's more that she prayed privately to God than what is recorded. Um, what we do know is that Hannah had confidence in God's ability and his willingness to hear her prayers. It's totally according to his character to hear the prayers of the humble and the destitute and to take notice of hearts that belong to him wholly. So that is all throughout Psalms. Like, just read the Psalms and you'll see God is so merciful. He wants to listen. He desires to hear us crying out to him. She belonged to God. She trusts him. And she also feels the freedom to ask for the deepest desires of her heart. It reminds me of Hebrews 4.16 that says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a sweet promise. So Eli sees her mouth moving. He doesn't hear any words, and he assumes the worst. And he's very wrong. Unfortunately, Eli's assumption about Hannah is understandable when you consider the way that sin was abounding in that culture and maybe even especially in the temple. His sons were not good guys. They were sexually immoral with women that would come into the temple to worship, and it would be under the banner of Yahweh worship. So it was just incorporating pagan worship, um, saying they were worshiping the God of Israel. The Bible tells us that they were greedy. They despised the offering of the Lord by taking um, all the offerings that the people would bring. So you remember, like, just the fat is, belongs to God. Certain portions were just to go to the priest, and other portions were just to be burned um, in honor of the Lord. But they would take all of it. So that's happening. That's what's going on in the temple. There's just lots of not great things going on all over the place. So Eli's, it's understandable. He's not completely off the hook for that, and there's a good reminder for us here. Proverbs 18:13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So Eli was actually acting foolishly by rebuking her for something that wasn't true, and he was wrong. But here again, we get to see now the grace and humility that reside in Hannah's heart. So Hannah could have been exasperated or felt sorry for herself because so many things were difficult in her life. 
and this just kind of adds insult to injury. But what do we see come out of her mouth? We only see the evidence of grace and humility that reside in her heart. She's in a dark hour and she got bumped and what came out of her heart is not bitterness or anger. Her humility toward Eli is really sweet. One of the books I read on Hannah made this helpful observation. He said, when we are unjustly censured, meaning strongly disapproved of, we need to set a double watch before the door of our lips. That is so true. Hannah did not repay evil for evil, but she does give an accurate account of herself to Eli just to correct his misconceptions. She tells him she hasn't been drinking, but she is troubled in spirit, and she's been pouring out her soul before the Lord. She calls herself Eli's servant. She sees him as an authority, and she honors him in that role. And she speaks to him in a manner according to the respect that she has for his position. I also think it's worth noting that Hannah doesn't feel the need to tell her sorrows to anyone other than God. She, when she told Eli she'd been praying, she didn't tell him specifically what she'd been praying for so that he could also pray for her too. I think I probably would have done that. So, of course, we can and we should ask fellow believers to pray for us. But our hope is not in other people's prayers even for us, but it's in God himself. She knows that she's left her request with the only one who can do anything about the situation. And it just demonstrates where her faith is placed. So Eli does like a, a 180, and he basically gives an amen to her prayer. He realizes he made a mistake probably in how he talked to her. He says he hopes that God will grant her petition. And now we're at the part that I find so encouraging. Hannah leaves the temple, says she ate, and her face was no longer sad. Was Hannah with child at this point? No. Was she certain that she'd become pregnant or certain that she would have this son? I don't think so. I just think this is encouraging because we know it's possible to have joy without the immediate desires of our heart being met. We can cast our cares on the Lord and then walk away with a joyful countenance. Matthew Henry writes again, Hannah believed that God would either give her the mercy that she'd prayed for or make up the one of it to her some other way. That's so interesting. That's probably true. She didn't leave the tabernacle with a promise that God would actually give her what she prayed for. Eli saying, I hope that God grants your petition is not a promise from God that that's going to happen. She didn't receive any sort of supernatural revelation. Um, she just knew that um, she could trust God and he would do what's right with that request. The next morning, the family rises up early and they worship before the Lord again. And then they go back home to Ramah. It seems that right away, Hannah experiences the answer to her prayers. Verse 19 says that Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. He remembered her. That's exactly what she had asked for. It's the same wording. He knows the details of our lives. He sees it all. He remembered Hannah, and she conceived. She had the son that she had asked for. And then what did she name him? She gave him a name that would remind her every time she called him to her, every time that she said it, that God had heard her prayer. She named him Samuel, which means I have asked for him from God. So Samuel's name would also could have been probably a reminder to Samuel himself of the prayer that his mom had made um, regarding him before he was even created. And there was a commentator that I want to share his personal story. I thought it was really sweet. Um, he said that he grew up in a family with five boys and his family was really consistent in family worship. His dad would usually lead it. When his dad was out of town, his mom would lead worship, family worship, just time together. 
and he said he would always kind of dread it because she would pray for each of the boys, five boys by name. And um, he said to hear his mom's heart just poured out in prayer over each one of them was so touching because they belonged to her, but there was nothing that she wanted more for them than that they would belong to God. And so it would actually, he'd almost always get teary-eyed, so he kind of dreaded that. But how sweet to have a mom that prays to that end, and the, and the son knows that. And I think Samuel was the same way, knew that his mom had desired, and obviously, the rest of his life, he was in service to God. All right, let's move on to the third section, Hannah's faithfulness. This is the work that we see Hannah doing. So, so far, we've seen her hardship. We've seen her humility on display in her prayers and in the way she interacts with her husband, with God, with Eli. Even in the name she gives her son, we see her humility. So now we're going to see her heart expressed in her work really briefly in the home. Um, it's just for the first three years of Samuel's life. So let's read together verses 21 to 28. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to Yahweh. For this boy I prayed, and Yahweh has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to Yahweh as long as he lives. He is dedicated to Yahweh, and he worshiped Yahweh there. Okay, so Hannah's given birth to Samuel. It's now time to go up to Shiloh for one of the yearly feasts. Um, and Elkanah is going, and he has a vow to pay before the Lord as well. We don't know what that is. And Hannah tells Elkanah that she's not going to go up this time. She's going to stay home until she weans Samuel. Elkanah trusts her decision and her resolve. And this is just a window into their marriage. Um, there is mutual trust, and there's respect between these two. In the Old Testament, um, the law in, that Moses gave them, a man could annul or cancel um, his wife's vow to the Lord if he didn't agree. So Elkanah actually didn't have to go along with her offering of Samuel for the rest of his life. But he obviously was in agreement with it. He wanted to keep that vow to the Lord. So, um, so he went up without her and let her make that decision. Um, Hannah's work at home, her work with um, Samuel, is very important to her. She probably nursed Samuel until he was three years old, so she had a really short, which that seems long, but she had a really short time to take care of him, a short time to enjoy him and to train him. She probably wanted to make the most of the time that she had and not leave him with anyone else so that she could go up to the feast. So we know that Samuel must have been prepared at home for what he was going to do with his life. Think about what kind of training would have taken place so that a three-year-old boy is not left kicking and screaming and crying after his mom when he's dropped off at the tabernacle. And he's not being dropped off to be played with or taken care of. He's being dropped off so that he can help. So I have to believe there was just a lot of training regarding obedience 
so that when Hannah's authority over Samuel was transferred to Eli, it wasn't a surprise to Samuel, and he was prepared for it. Hannah would have been the first one to teach Samuel about God. She was the one that directed his learning and his interest. She was intentionally preparing him for a lifetime of service to God. And then when it was time, and he was weaned, Hannah and her husband take Samuel, along with the sacrifice offerings, to the temple in Shiloh. And there is no sense of sorrow or sadness in this scene. There is only joy and exaltation of God, and really a sense of amazement at God's kindness to her. And this is where we see the greatest evidence that Hannah's desire for a child was not idolatrous. She was not just asking to get something she wanted. She herself was given to the Lord. She wanted to give herself to a son in order to give that son back to the Lord. And this was not a temporary giving or temporary lending. It wasn't just a year or three years or 10 years, but it was as long as he lives. He is not mine. That's what Hannah would be saying. This is what John MacArthur said about Hannah and her parenting. He said, a godly mother presents her child to God. When you bear a child, ladies, that child belongs to God as much as Hannah's child did. That child is a heritage from the Lord, not your own, but a treasure which you manage for his glory. Okay, let's move on to section four. Um, we'll read her prayer, which is in two, one to 10. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered. But the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry ceased to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he sets the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed. So this time, when Hannah prays, her prayer is not silent, just between herself and God. It's a praise that's spoken, and it's meant to be heard. It's to God, but it's also for the benefit of those who are near enough to hear it. And that includes us that get to hear it. She gives praise where praise is due. She says that her heart exalts. Her strength is exalted in Yahweh. God has answered her prayer, and she, who is without strength, who is desperate, unable, grieving, vexed, distressed, has strength but it's a strength that's given to her from God. It's not her own. And just notice the object of Hannah's prayer. It is obviously God. She doesn't even mention Samuel by name in this prayer. She seems to overlook the gift, and she just praises the giver. I was actually struck thinking about that. Just there's no mention of Samuel. Hannah didn't talk about how wonderful and smart and handsome this miracle baby was. She was truly more in awe of the one that had given her this gift than in awe of the gift itself. And I'll quote Matthew Henry again, because he had a good one. 
Uh, he said, every stream should lead us to the fountain. There may be other Samuels, but no other Yahweh. So every gift we have in our life should lead us back to worshiping the giver of that gift, not the gift itself. And every time I read Hannah's prayer, I am just kind of blown away, really, by how much she knew about God. And it's convicting um, just to know how, how well she believed him. Um, I don't think, there's nothing in scripture that would um, insinuate or lend us to think that she had more access to God's word or knew more about him somehow. I mean, it's possible because she was going up to the temple, maybe more often than other women, um, but she probably had about the same amount of exposure to God's word as every other person in Israel. It's just that whatever she did know about God, she believed it wholeheartedly, and then she was able to pray like this. So she says, here's what she knows about God. She knows that he is completely holy and he's set apart. He is a rock. That means he's stable. He's a protector. And Hannah had obviously found relief in that aspect of God. He is all-knowing. Verse 5 says that God is a God of knowledge. He weighs the actions of men. So he sees our hearts. He can observe the motives in our actions, behind our actions. And because of that, there's no room for arrogant speech from our mouth. She knew that God was intimately knowledgeable of her heart as well as every human heart that exists. Then in the rest of her prayer, she gives all these categories. Um, some are positive categories, some are negative, and maybe it depends on which time you're thinking of. This might be negative or positive. But here's what she talks about. People that are mighty, who are full, those who have borne seven children, the wicked, adversaries of Yahweh, she talks about people that are feeble, hungry, barren, needy, poor, faithful ones to Yahweh. So there are people that are strong. They have everything that this world seems to offer. Um, they, they seem totally happy and content. And in a moment, God can change their setting that they're in. They could be um, poor and needy, lacking and desperate. And vice versa, those who are needy, lacking and desperate, um, in a moment, God can make them be wealthy, um, full of children, um, full of food. So all of those categories have one thing in common, and that is that God is in control of every single circumstance, and he can change every circumstance as he determines, as he wills. The earth belongs to him, and he's the one who sustains and supports it. And then notice the personal comfort that we have in verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. If we are in Christ and we belong to God, then no matter what situation or circumstance we find ourselves in, we can trust that God is guarding, taking care of our feet. He's protecting the path that we're walking for our good. As dismal as a situation may be, we can trust that God has not just dropped us in a hard circumstance without any care. He's actually protecting the specific path that we're walking on. And those things are not true for God's adversaries. He is not protecting their feet. He is in control of their circumstances, but the protecting of feet is just for his godly ones, his faithful ones. And it says those who are against him, their path is going to be cut off in darkness. So Hannah knew that people don't succeed or prevail because of their own personal strength or their might or ability or resources, but just because of God. Then it says that Hannah knows that God will judge the ends of the earth. She says God will also give strength to his king. That's an interesting reference because there's actually no king in Israel at this time. But Hannah has heard about this promised seed 
It was promised specifically to Eve, this seed, this person that's going to set people free from Satan's power. And she also knows from Moses that the scepter, meaning the rulership, leadership, is not going to pass from Judah. So she's looking forward to this promised king, this promised leader um, that she calls God's anointed. And the English word for anointed, um, that she used for anointed, is Messiah. It just represents the same thing, anointed or Messiah. So Hannah has hope for God's future plan for human history. Her prayer in this section reveals a heart that is just grounded in the knowledge of God's sovereign macro rule over the universe, as well as his micro rule over the circumstances of each individual. She knows that God is kind and he specially protects his faithful ones as they live and move upon the earth, but he also has a long-term plan for human history, and it culminates in the Messiah. All right, let's move on to Hannah's harvest. This is the last section. And I'm not going to read more, um, so that's kind of all we're going to read about Hannah's um, biography. I've tagged on, I put on um, verses where it talks about, actually, I don't know if I put them all on, but it's where, um, it's just the rest of Samuel's life. Because I think the fruit, the harvest of Hannah's life is seen in Samuel's life. Not completely, but a lot of it. Um, Samuel's godly influence in Israel is produced ultimately by God, but the seed, the planting of the seed and the watering of it was Hannah's God-given work. So I don't know if I have just chapters 3 to 12 complete the rest of Samuel's life, and I think I'd listed some other passages from chapter 2 about Hannah. So um, in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, God calls to Samuel. You'll probably remember this story. This is like one of those classic children's stories. Um, you, I just can imagine the little books that my mom would read me where Samuel's like laying on this little mat, and God calls to him, and he goes out to Eli. So anyway, God calls to him, and um, he's still young, and he thinks it's Eli's voice. Um, but it says in verse 7 of chapter 3, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So he still was, um, up to this point, um, not regenerated. Not, um, he didn't have a personal relationship with Yahweh. So we observe that Samuel is obedient before he knows God in a personal way. His obedience was not something that saved him. It wasn't something that even earned him favor with God. But it's encouraging for us as moms or women that work with children just to see that there is benefit to teaching our children to obey even before they've been saved. The obedience is not obviously an end in itself, um, but it is beneficial to our children, and it will be a blessing to them after salvation if they've learned it. So that's just some of the fruit that we see. Um, I've already mentioned to you guys what Eli's sons are like. That's verses 12 to 18, but I think it's interesting. There's this description of Eli's sons. And then in verse 18 and 21 and 26, we see kind of a contrast with Samuel. Um, he is ministering before the Lord. He's growing before the Lord. And then um, verse 26, uh, now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. And then we have the rest of his life filled out in chapters 3 to 12. So one of the best commendations Samuel received is that God was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And I didn't write what verse that's from, but it's somewhere in chapters 12 to 3 to 12. But Samuel truly heard God's words, and he faithfully delivered those words to the nation of Israel. He walked in God's ways, 
And then he was trusted by the people of Israel. He was trusted by both kings, by Saul and by David. Um, and then after Eli died, the, the high priest, the Ark of God was captured. And then uh, Samuel no longer just stayed at the tabernacle. He would go from town to town, giving spiritual leadership or judging kind of judging matters. And he would um, go back. The Bible tells us he would go back to Ramah and stay. So it's possible. I don't know how old he was at that point. Um, but that if Hannah could have still been alive, he might have been able to enjoy a little bit more of a closer relationship with her, and she would have obviously given godly influence into his life at that point, too. Um, verse 21, more of Hannah's harvest, more of the fruit of her life. We see that God blessed her with more children after Samuel. She had three more sons and two daughters. So God used Hannah's affliction to purify her. This purifying refinement would make her more fit, more able to shepherd Samuel. Then she was even more able to give him back to God and then to praise God with his prayer recorded in verse 2. She reaped a harvest and she bore fruit for God. The fruit of her life blessed her husband and her son and no doubt her subsequent children. The fruit of her life blessed the nation of Israel even and King David and then even us women here. So we don't know how God would use our affliction or our lives, but we can trust him just as wholeheartedly as Hannah did, that he will guard our feet. So here's some implications. Um, like I said before, there's a lot of things to take away from Hannah's example, um, but I just had to go with a few things. So Hannah was afflicted. She had some really good things going for her in a lot, her life. I mean, she had this husband that just loved her and respected her, um, but she also had some really difficult circumstances and we can all relate to that we have good things we have hard things and we have both so one of the implications that we need to glean from her life is that we need to know where to go in affliction Hannah knew where to go she went to God she went on her own she went confidently but she also went humbly prayer is a comfort but it's also a privilege God has given us access to himself through Christ so the reason that we can come boldly to his throne is only because we have Christ's righteousness covering us and Jesus has taken, traded our sin for his righteousness. So if we have this privilege, we would be remiss to forego the comfort and the help that we receive from pouring our soul out to the Lord. So under that first one, know where to go in affliction, um, you can put down some heart attitudes that Hannah exemplified. Um, first, she did not come to God in pride. She was humble. Um, she was not demanding her own way. So humility is one of the heart attitudes. Um, she viewed herself as a servant of God, yet she was a servant that's able to make requests that honor him. And then secondly, she was hopeful. She was not self-pitying or hopeless in her prayer. She is sad and she is weeping, but she has hope that God will indeed hear her prayer and do what is best. And then thirdly, she was entrusting. Um, I was trying to just, like, how can I make the word castful a word, casting? But she was entrusting. And this really flows out of the first two heart attitudes. She humbled herself under God's mighty hand, and then she cast her burden on God, and she trusted him. She trusted that he would answer her prayer or help her out of the affliction somehow so that she would be able to be joyful as she left the tabernacle, able to eat. Okay, second implication. Um, two, know your position. 
Hannah did not have a lofty view of herself, but she did have a lofty view of God. If you are in Christ, then you're no longer a slave to sin, but you are a willing slave to God himself. So God is not your servant, but you are his willing, grateful servant. And there's obviously more to our position in Christ than just being a willing, grateful servant, but that is what Hannah exemplified for us. Um, I will just go ahead and re-recommend the sermon that Anne talked about in her heart shepherding lesson, the One New Man sermon from August of 2014. Um, Smed just listed every time, everything the Bible says about what it means to be in Christ, and it's so helpful to think about that. Um, but Hannah exemplified a grateful servant. She also exemplified being light in darkness. And you can just jot down Philippians 2, 14 and 15. I just thought this described her so well. She proved herself to be blameless and innocent, a child of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And she shined like a star. That is a paraphrase. <laughs> um, she reflected God's glory. That light was not something that she conjured up. She was reflecting God in the, in the world that she was living in. Third implication from Hannah's life is to be faithful. Hannah was faithful with the promise that she'd made to God. She was also faithful to nurture and train and care for Samuel and then to bring him to the tabernacle so that he could be of service to God and to Eli. She was also faithful in her love for God and in her habits of worshiping God and in her knowing and believing him, but we'll talk about that last. So the fourth implication for us from Hannah's life is to know and believe your God. We have God's word so available to us. We have multiple copies of the Bible. We have the Bible on our phones and our tablets. We have access to thousands of sermons online, um, reference books, all, everything. However, please keep in mind Hebrews 4, to not harden your hearts when you hear God's voice. We just have to check that in the midst of so much access to God's voice, we don't resist him by not believing his word. Hannah knew a lot about God, yet she had less facts about God than we did. What she did know about him, she believed wholeheartedly. She was faithful with the knowledge that she had about God to believe him. And so we would do well to follow her example in that. And so I'm just going to close with reading 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 again because I think it just summarizes Hannah's example so well to us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this example of Hannah um, and also just to be able to know that you care for us. God, that is amazing. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve to have you care for us, but you do. And we don't deserve um, for you to hear our prayers, but you do. And God, we're so thankful. God, I pray that we um, would humble ourselves under your hand, that we would cast our cares on you, that we'd be able to have joy and um, hope, knowing that you hear us and that you will do what's right and do what's best. I pray, God, that you would sustain us as we walk by faith and um, live for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.